What I'm going to do today is try to step back a bit, if you will, from the sort of the day-to-day -day conversations around the present and the future of the media. Um, many of you in the room will follow this um, for professional reasons, but also perhaps of, of a personal interest and a commitment to the role of media and journalism and democracy. And every day we'll hear new stories about uh, changes in, our, in, in, in the media industry and journalism. Uh, just yesterday, we learned that Glenn Greenwald is, is leaving The Guardian to start a new, uh, a new journalistic enterprise. And every day and every week, we'll bring individual case studies uh, like this, cases or events, that uh, attest, if you will, to the, to the quite profound changes going on in our media environment these days. I think, though, there is a value in trying to step back, if you will, a little bit from the churn of day-to-day -day coverage of these issues and trying to think about what is it that has happened to our media, if you will. Um, and I took on this rather modest task uh, in a report that we published last year that has the title uh, of my presentation, <coughs> 10 Years to Show the Media World is available uh, on the Institute website, in which um, I, um, I, I took on to work with a team of partners in different countries to look at what has actually happened to the media industries in a range of different countries over the last uh, roughly uh, 10 years. Um, most of the findings, most of the, uh, if you will, the, the arguments I will make today are based on this research in which we looked at a range of Western democracies, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, the UK, and the US, as a sort of a sample, if you will, of different sized countries and different types of media systems and political systems in the Western world, but also looked at the emerging economies of Brazil and India. So all the countries I'm going to talk about are democracies. Um, they are uh, either six of them Western, two of them are, are, are relatively speaking, either a, a medium income or a low income country, but both of them with, with considerable growth in, in recent years. Um, some of these uh, points, if you will, will apply to other countries too, but I claim no particular insight on how things are in less fortunate countries in Africa and elsewhere for that matter, uh, or indeed in authoritarian or, or, or post-democratic uh, societies, if you will. So that, if, if you will, is the the scope of what I'm going to speak about. I'm going to touch on three facets of the changes we've seen in these countries in the media industries over the last 10 years. Uh, I'll talk about media use, uh, I'll talk about media markets, and I'll talk about media policy. I will start with the user. I think there is a real intellectual point in starting uh, with the, the user. We might call the user a citizen or a consumer or both. Uh, because this, as I will end uh, by explaining, I think is key to understanding uh, how our media are changing today. I will talk about markets, of course, because journalists, these professional journalists, uh, uh, have to make a living somehow, and hence someone has to make money. Um, and I'll talk about policy because even uh, private news organizations are intimately intertwined with political structures and forms of media regulation, so that too shapes how the media are developing in these countries. Now, I think we could say, at least as a starting point, before I, I go into these issues, that um, we know that there is not one story to tell about what has happened to the media uh, over the last 10 years. Every country is distinct, often every region, uh, in particular within larger countries. Uh, circulation of newspapers in the southern states of the United States, for instance, are lower than they are in southern Europe. And yet the country as a whole has a newspaper circulation rate that's closer to what we see in continental Europe and here in the UK, Brazil and India even more so. The, difference, the regional differences are considerable. 
every company has their own challenges, their own strategies, and their own experiences. But there are some commonalities. And I think those commonalities include both, um, if you will, a, a, a simple set of things that we know about all these countries that is as relevant today in 2013 as it was in 2000, the period in which I started uh, I, my, my research takes a sort of the starting point, if you will, of the story I'm telling you today. It is that we know that in all these countries, despite all the changes of the last uh, 10 years, quote unquote, old media continue to fund the vast majority of professional journalism, uh, predominantly through newspaper companies, who employ most professional journalists in all the countries. Um, I'm looking at not only a plurality, but a majority of professional journalists. We know that old media, again, quote unquote, continue to disseminate most news. And here, most importantly, of course, television, which is the number one source of news in all the countries uh, that I'm looking at, both in terms of uh, reach, but also when you ask people to rate the importance of the sources of news that they use. And also, of course, third, we know that, quote unquote, old media increasingly produce journalism and disseminate, disseminate journalism using, quote unquote, new media. So, um, though there sometimes is a tendency to talk about the digital disruption in terms of legacy incumbents and new arrivals, of course, when you look specifically at news in most markets, um, the websites of established news media organizations continue to be the most important sources of news on the internet. Um, and though search engines and social networks are gateways to news for many people, the news that people arrive at when they go through those gateways are still predominantly produced by legacy players. Of course, um, they are changing. So how do we understand the nature of these changes? First, I'll talk about the role of the user, all of us here as citizens and consumers uh, of media. I think the first thing we have to, to keep in mind and try to understand uh, the role of the media user today is that some of us live in the future. So most of us in this room have in our pocket a little device that gives us access to more information, some have argued, than Bill Clinton had access to when he was in the White House. <laughs> now, we may use this to mostly for social networking or everyday coordination with, with our significant others and to look at videos of, of cats and whatnot. Um, but, but this is a tremendous change, if you will. And, and though it, it, it sounds almost you know, wearily familiar by now to talk about a revolution, I think we shouldn't discount just how profound a change that is and what the long-term implications might be of that um, future that many of us live in which virtually anything, not quite, but many things at least, are available virtually everywhere, at any time, and often for free. Now, I can say here that um, it's for free because, at least in my case, my parents pay the bills. Uh, not in the way that they pay uh, for my subscription to the New York Times, uh, or that they give me pocket money to pay for it, but in that the content that I consume for free, or advertise in supported formats online, is funded by the momentum of legacy business models based on the media habits of my parents. So my parents subscribe to, paper, to a print newspaper, they pay their license fee, um, they have a cable package, and all of those business models sustain the journalism that I consume for free. I don't have a television. I don't need to pay a license fee. I do subscribe to a newspaper, uh, but that makes me very unusual for, for someone of my age. 
Um, and I also subscribe to the New York Times, which draws 10% uh, of its paying customers from outside the United States, and though it may, may draw more in the future, that also, I think, is slightly unusual for someone like me who otherwise is living in this future. Now, by saying that I subscribe to a newspaper, I foreshadow, if you will, the second point about media use, which is when we think about this future that some of us live in, we should think of it as sort of what I like to call sort of a retrofitted future. Um, for the sci-fi uh, fans in the room, I'd say it's more Blade Runner than it's Star Wars. It's a future in which um, the remnants of industrial society are still very much with us, in which inherited forms of media use are still very important parts of people's cross-media habits, even in the case of younger generations growing up. Um, though there are many who do not watch linear television, even more do. Though most do not subscribe to print newspapers, some do. Um, and this is, of course, even more so the case when we look at the total population, that these are still um, key parts of the overall media uh, ecology. Uh, and we see, of course, interestingly, that some new entrants are actively embracing, quote unquote, old media. Um, earlier this week, um, it was announced that Netflix, the streaming uh, service, the video on demand service, is uh, trying to negotiate deals with cable providers to become available through set-top boxes. Uh, we were supposed to work the other way around, wasn't it? That streaming services kill off cable. Now the streaming services, in addition to killing off cable, also trying to get on the cable set-top box, because, probably because they realize it's not going to go away in a minute. Um, Politico, um, for those of you who know it, it's a website that covers American politics um, in great detail. Um, it is also, as a business, relying on its print uh, outlet, which is circulated in DC, and is filled with brand advertising for various lobbyists and industry associations and so on and so forth. That's where they make their money. They embrace print. And not necessarily the main platform for dissemination, but as part of their business model. And it's not only about the companies, it is also very much about the consumers. And we can illustrate this point, if you will, um, with a, a table we created last year when we did the first version of the annual Reuters Institute Digital News Report in 2012, where we looked specifically at tablet users and the ways in which they get used. So I'll show you a slide, if you will, of some, I think, quite striking figures from that report. So this is 2012 data. It may have changed since. We have, don't have the breakdown from 2013. But these are the um, sources of news that people in the UK in 2012 who own a tablet report that they have used to access news in the last month. Um, the first thing I think that springs out here is that only about two-thirds of those who have a tablet have used it to access news. The second is that more have used both television and desktop computers or laptop computers. And third, Almost as many of tablet users in the UK report that they've used print newspapers. And this, by the way, is considerably more than the population at large. So even for those of us who live in the future, print, at least in a niche, sometimes, in some occasions, weekends, for instance, is still part of the media mix, um, and very much so linear television. The last thing I'll say about media use um, is uh, the necessary caveat to the observation that we live in the future, at least some of us or parts of our lives live in the future, is that the future isn't evenly distributed. Most obviously this is the case when we look across countries, uh, though Brazil will probably become an internet majority country by this year, 
uh, it is still the case that, uh, that tens of millions of Brazilians do not have access to the internet. Of course, with India, this is more, even more so. About 15% of the Indian population is estimated to be internet users. That's a very large number, but that still means that something like a billion isn't, aren't internet users. But even in affluent uh, Northern European and North American countries, um, the future isn't evenly distributed. It was recently uh, discussed in a report by the um, uh, Commerce Department in the, in the US that the number of Americans who use the internet regularly has basically not increased since Barack Obama took office. Barack Obama took office in 2009, January 2009. One of his first initiatives as part of the bailout package and the, sorry, the stimulus package was to allocate um, $7 billion to broadband rollout to uh, make broadband available in, in rural communities and communities in which there was no commercial say, uh, case for, making, for, for providing broadband. And yet, uh, there has been only slow incremental growth in the percentage of Americans who regularly access the internet. It's still about 80% of the total population. When you look at African Americans, of course, historically, uh, underprivileged part of the American population, it is less than 60%. The next, if you will, sort of avenue of approach or aspect of the changes I think we've seen in our media over the last 10 years I'll talk about is the question of media markets. And the first um, point I'll make there is um, that though there's been a lot of total digital disruption, and rightly so in many ways, what we should um, remember is that when we look at the numbers, it's quite clear that the um, cyclical downturns, the various economic recessions so far have hurt legacy media, commercial legacy media, much more than the digital transition. Um, it is, uh, I'll return to the case of newspapers, um, which uh, are um, uh, a subset, an important subset here, but television, in particular television advertising, we know that advertising is very cyclical, it follows the economic cycle, and in periods of recession there's been stagnation or even decline in the, in the amount of money spent on television advertising. This is even more so the case with newspapers are compounded by the structural transformation, but even with newspapers, let me give the example of Germany, a country that is ranked higher by the International Telecommunication Union than the US in terms of its level of information technology and infrastructural development. Um, from 2000 to 2003 in Germany, the percentage of the population who used the internet doubled in three years, from 30% to 60%. The same period, uh, the amount of money spent on newspaper advertising declined by 25%, 2.5 billion euros. Now, the first glance, you might think that this is the migration of advertising from print to digital. Only the problem with, with assuming that is that the growth of internet advertising in the same three-year period was 100 million euros. 2.5 billion lost, 100 million in growth in the internet. And I think it's fair to see that when we look at the, the overall development in advertising in the case of Germany, what that reflected was the downturn. It was the aftermath of the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Those were the years, for those of us who today forget when we think about Germany, when Germany was considered the sick man of Europe. The stagnant uh, economy losing competitiveness, and an export-oriented economy struggling with the aftermath of the, of the dot-com bubble. Those were the years of the first recession of the notes. Uh, if you will. And when the markets resumed, growth resumed in Germany and elsewhere, and exports picked up, and the harsh reforms, reforms that helped increase German competitiveness, so did newspaper advertising. Newspaper advertising in Germany grew from 2004 to 2008. Every year it grew in percentages 
at the same time as internet use grew, grew, at the same time as internet advertising grew, then another recession. And of course, an accelerated structural transition. Because that is then the second point, if you will, about the media markets, that newspapers in particular have been faced with the structural transformation to a much larger extent than television, for instance. Of course, one particularly clear example of this is the category of classified advertising, which has moved almost wholesale online. Um, and this has been a major loss of revenue for local and regional uh, newspapers in many countries. And for some industries, like the American newspaper industry, where this was about a third of total revenues, this has been a major, major blow that is largely driven by the emergence of digital alternatives that are superior from the point of view of the consumer and the advertiser. So there are um, industries that have felt the structural transition much more keenly, but more is to come, especially for television, but not only for television. I'm going to show you uh, now what we might think of as the graph from Hill, um, which is an estimate. We don't have comparable estimates for every country, but it's instructive to look at it anyway. An estimate from the US of the percentage of media use that goes to particular platforms compared to the percentage of advertising that goes to those particular platforms. And in countries where you do not have a sizable public service intervention, which leaves parts of the media landscape um, devoid of advertising, the general idea is that if you adopt a sort of an equilibrium model, which we should be careful with, but anyway, is that the proportion of time spent and the proportion of advertising spent should be roughly equal over time. That if there is an equilibrium, that will be the equilibrium. This is what it looked like in 2012 in the US. Print, though American newspapers have lost about half their advertising revenue uh, over the last 10 years, is still 25% of advertising spent in the US. It is only 7% of the time that media users spend with media. So you can start thinking about where that's heading when advertisers start following the consumer. It's part of the point about why the real structural transformation is ahead of us. It isn't something we've gone through already. Radio, rough parity. Television, rough parity. Internet. Now this too, by the way, should send shutters down the spine of many uh, newspaper executives because the idea that the current rates of growth in online advertising can be sustained may not bear out uh, as uh, we are uh, moving towards a parity between time spent and advertising today. Mobile, considerable growth opportunity here. But of course, on mobile, we will see, as we did online, that A, news is a small proportion of the total time spent on these platforms. It's very hard to calculate these, but some uh, one company, for instance, Experian Hitwise, estimates that about 7% of internet traffic goes to news and media sites. So one problem that face a news media organization is that even though there is growth potential here, the question is how much of it will go to them versus how much will go to Google and Facebook and, uh, and other players. We know that Google alone accounts for almost half of global online advertising. The other uh, problem, again, which we will face in mobile and we already face in the internet, is the problem of almost limitless inventory. That supply is uh, almost uh, unlimited, and hence the rates for advertising are very low compared to what we were used to in the environment of television, radio, and print, in which there was a scarcity, a limited supply of advertising. So the rates that one gets are not what they were used to. Now, before we get all depressed about this, of course, it is important to remember that overall, the media business is doing great. 
Overall media spend is increasing, both when it comes to consumer spend and advertising spend. Only the problem from the point of view of journalism and democracy is that the link that existed historically between the fortunes of the media industry and how much was invested into journalism in many countries and in many industries seems to be broken. Because either it reflected a business model like newspapers that was based on a bundle. We see that a little bit with some broadcast still, and there's a question of whether this can be sustained into a digital environment where you had a bundle where you cross-subsidized content. So some people bought the newspaper because they wanted the sports and the lifestyle supplement, and they subsidized the news bureau, just as those who bought the newspaper for the news subsidized the sports coverage and the lifestyle, lifestyle supplements. With a fragmentation of media markets uh, and an asthmaization of media, it becomes harder to sustain those cross-subsidies. Uh, the other form of cross-subsidy that exists across uh, within media companies was essentially politically imposed, either in, in requirements that one did provide uh, news in return for getting a broadcast license, or as an expectation that companies reacted to that they thought it was good for them to be in good standing with policymakers in terms of license renewals that they did public service. Uh, that was specific to broadcast. And of course, uh, there is a question of whether that will be sustained in a, in a future in which there is no longer spectrum scarcity to justify those public interest requirements um, if we move to a world of limitless uh, bandwidth, uh, which we aren't at yet and won't be uh, in, uh, in the near future, but is not necessarily uh, impossible to imagine. The third um, area I'll speak about is media policy, and that's, of course, coming off the back of this question of what it was about the regulatory environment we've inherited in the 20th century um, that has consequences for, the, for journalism, the future of journalism in a changing media environment. Now, the first thing I think we should say about media policy is that, broadly speaking, a sort of information policy uh, this has been a very high priority in all the countries uh, that I've looked in my research, whether you look at Brazil and India, where in both countries the governments have rolled out very ambitious uh, broadband, national broadband plans backed with billions of dollars in investment, or for that matter at the, um, the Western democracies that I've looked at, where in the US, as said, Barack Obama dedicated a lot of money to this uh, in part of the stimulus package. In Europe, it was part of the Lisbon strategy. It's part of the 2020 uh, strategy. And may, most national governments have their own broadband plans for, for investing in infrastructure and media literacy. Um, so broadly speaking, media policy at that level of information technology, telecom, um, has been very high priority in many countries. Now, we must, I think, hasten to add, though, that this is less the case when we look at media policy more narrowly speaking as a question of media regulation, uh, constant regulation, for instance, and especially the question of the kinds of direct and indirect subsidies that are provided to support, for, amongst other things, journalism. That has not been particularly high priority, with some exceptions. In France, the Sarkozy government uh, did move very aggressively into this with a, a, a package for the industry to tide it over during the worst years of the global recession uh, and to help uh, stimulate uh, innovation in the industry and with changes in the way in which public service broadcasting functions uh, that were perhaps uh, less motivated by a deep desire to, to, help, uh, to help the broadcasters adapt, um, if I may say so. 
Um, and in other countries like Italy, for instance, for very obvious political reasons, uh, media policy has been very high priority, though uh, reforms have not necessarily been uh, designed primarily with the interest of democracy or journalism uh, in mind. But in the other countries, media policy at the level of subsidies and regulation has been left to bureaucrats, um, shall we say, less than top politicians. And, and the interest of lobbyists and few civil society groups who try to get involved in this area. And we can see, if you will, the consequences when we look at the forms of support that are politically provided to journalism in different countries. I'm just going to look here at the six Western democracies I looked at um, for my research and look at the forms of direct and indirect subsidy provided for um, uh, media organizations. Um, in all of them, they are instantly recognizable as the same forms of support that were supported, that were provided in the 90s, so, and before in many cases. Public service media, by far the largest um, uh, beneficiary in all these countries apart from the United States, where indirect subsidy for the press is larger. Um, uh, indirect press support in almost all of these countries, the second most important form of intervention, uh, VAT exemptions, or at least reductions. Uh, these are things that newspaper industries do not like to talk about as subsidies, but when they are under threat, they will rally around them because they, uh, and they sometimes say this explicitly when they are threatened to lose them, that these are essential, uh, uh, of essential importance to the ability of the industry to, to um, continue to produce a profit. Um, and then in countries like France and Italy, we, we still have direct forms of subsidies of the press, distribution subsidies, and others. And in a few cases, there are other forms of support, such as in Italy, there are support for local broadcasting. And in France, there was a small amount of money set aside to support online uh, journalism. But it is a very small subset of the overall support package. All of these forms of subsidy otherwise are the same ones that existed in the 90s, the same one that existed in many cases in the 80s and 70s. They were put in place either with the advent of public service broadcasting, or in the case of the press subsidies, the indirect ones in some countries like here have existed for a long time. Other places, they were put in place after the newspaper deaths that accompanied the rise of television in the 60s and the 70s. The final thing I'll say about media policy um, is that reform in what we might call sort of adjacent areas, uh, areas that aren't necessarily strictly con concerned only with media, but have implications for media have been peaceful um, and partial. These can be many different things. Libel law is a big deal in this country, for instance. Uh, in some countries, there have been cons uh, discussions around tax policy concerning the question of whether journalism can be a nonprofit activity. Uh, this is not uh, necessarily a simple uh, question to, to uh, address and not a simple issue to reform either. But I think the two bigger, if you will, uh, issues that are very live, at least in much of the Western world these days, and have been for some years now, is the question of copyright, of digital content. What kind of rights do content producers have when faced, in particular, with search engines and various forms of aggregators online, and, and, and especially with news? What is the status of news? Can you copyright a news story? This has not been the case. Uh, with facts, can't be copyrighted in, in, in many countries. Um, and of course, um, freedom of information, open government. There was much enthusiasm surrounding the idea of open government when the Obama administration uh, took office. Uh, the Cameron uh, Clegg government also has some uh, high profile initiatives now, of course, we know, after the Snowden 
uh, revelations that uh, those programs were accompanied by um, other programs, if you will, uh, and other initiatives that were not equally oriented towards uh, open government. So where does this leave us, if you will? I've talked about media use, I've talked about media markets, I've talked about uh, media policy's background, and key points, if you will, I think are commonalities to the countries that I have looked at. What does this mean um, for the future of the media, and for the future of journalism, and hence also for our democracies? I'll make three observations about that. The first is that we are at the beginning of change. Um, change has been rapid, change has been dramatic, uh, it has been painful for people who have lost their jobs or seen colleagues lose their jobs, whether in the newsroom or, as is much more than the case, amongst the technical support staff and clerical staff of news organizations and media organizations more generally. Um, but we are at the very start of the transitional period. Um, it will continue, and it will continue through generational inflation. So as older generations whose media habits were primarily formed in the 20th century and for whom digital is a supplement, uh, pass on uh, to whatever awaits, um, and are replaced by a younger generation who grow up in a convergent environment, this will accelerate the pace of change in terms of the business uh, of, of media industries. And of course, technology will continue to evolve and continue to challenge inherited business models and forms of regulation. This, if you will, leads to my second um, point. This is not a critical juncture as much as it's an unfinished revolution. And I say that because you will hear this in policy discussions often. This is a critical moment. Now is the time where we need to act to form the future of information environments. That is true in a way, but it is also the case that it's probably going to be a critical juncture next year, too, and the year after, and the year after again. It's not going to go over. There is no equilibrium inside. The third uh, thing I will say about is more specifically about, if you will, journalism and, um, and news and its role in democratic societies. At least in the Western world, I think these broad trends point towards a future in which we will see um, more media, more communication, stakeholder communication, PR, which are growing, growing businesses, um, and less news, at least uh, professionally produced original reporting. In emerging economies, the picture is more upbeat, which means for the majority of mankind, essentially, or a, a much larger part than those who live in these rain-swept countries all around the North Atlantic. Um, more media, more communication, but also more news. As long as there is growth, as long as more as millions of Indians uh, learn to read and join the money economy so that uh, companies want to sell uh, milk powder and shampoo to them, that will sustain vernacular language newspapers, that will sustain uh, news for people who are eager to be active citizens and parts of the society that they live in. But there, of course, there too, we will see um, some of these basic structural changes challenging the primacy, if you will, of journalism as a way in which we communicate about um, society. Now, I don't want to leave uh, you with the impression that I think this is a grim future. It isn't. Uh, in many ways, it's, uh, it looks very good. It looks very good for us as individuals, and as consumers, as citizens, uh, in terms of the information available. I mean, think about your own day and the kind of information you have access to, not necessarily narrowly speaking journalism. If you want to read a book, it was published in the 19th century before, you can probably find it in seconds for free online. That's amazing. 
the, the digitization of television archives bring to us moments of history that otherwise you would have to go to specialized research archives to find. Um, we can relive those things. There are all sorts of ways of connecting with each other and staying in touch with friends and acquaintances far away. Um, there are many economic benefits from this trans transformation, which of course is why governments are so keen on the information society part of, of this. There are many, many great things about this transition. There are many challenges, of course, too. But even with women journalism, I mean, this is not science, but I would say my own view as a citizen, as a consumer of journalism, is that the best journalism today is better than it's ever been. That it's uh, more detail, uh, it offers more depth of information, it uh, offers a greater spread of different views. Um, it offers, uh, it's more easily available in terms of timeliness. I can get it the moment I want, essentially, as long as it's uh, produced. It's often more inclusive. If you think about, um, for instance, women or minorities um, than, it, than it was for much of the 20th century, it's more responsive, in part because journalists, uh, even in institutions that in the past may have been rather self-confident about their role in society have come to realize that they aren't what they used to be. This, I think, all these things, I think, are good things. But of course, there is a question of whether it's sustainable. Um, why is there a professional journalism? I mean, why are there people who will pay your salaries if you work as a journalist? I think there are three basic uh, reasons for that if you go beyond the personal motivations of people wanting to be journalists and do journalism. Um, one is power. Uh, journalists have been employed by organizations who are essentially there to advance certain ideals or interests, stakeholder media, whether for corporate interests or political interests. That is very widespread. We see that in much of the world. We'll probably see more of it in the future in the Western world, though we thought we had left it behind. Public interest, um, whether politically mandated through public service uh, media, as we know them in, 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 in parts of the world, or whether provided through philanthropic support, um, as we see in some uh, other parts of the world. And finally, profit. I mean, journalism was supported by companies that made money off of it. And the profit motive, motive, motive is um, challenge, uh, if you will, in many cases, not all, but many. Uh, the public interest one is subject to political pressures, in some cases in part by companies that, from a profit motive, produce the public service, like newspapers, because they feel threatened by the digital offerings of public service providers. The power motive, that one I think we will see a lot of in the future. Uh, I'm not so worried about that one. But one challenge, all of these three different basic models, if you will, rationales for supporting journalists that work, one thing they all of them have in common is that in this world we're moving towards, they face a shared challenge which I think is the single most important transformation that we have seen. It didn't start in 2000, the period that I take as a starting point for my research. It started far before, but it has accelerated. And it is a greatly intensified competition for our attention as media users. That is why I start with the users. This, too, in America, people have tried to quantify what is this intensified competition for our attention? What does that look like? What does it look like if you think about the demand side, the number of minutes that the average American spend consuming media, using media, and the supply side, 
number of minutes worth of content that they have available. This is an impossible exercise to, to really quantify this in a precise fashion, but bear with me. There are researchers who try to do this, try to calculate how many channels do people have access to on cable on average, how many newspapers are circulated in the average zip code in the US, how many books will the average household have at home. So just an attempt to quantify in a rough manner what's the balance between demand, attention, supply, mediated content. This is what the graph looks like in the US from a situation in the 60s in which the average American uh, household had uh, access to about 100 minutes worth of, uh, of content for every minute of attention. Very steady growth throughout the, uh, the 60s and 70s uh, and 80s, and then of course with the introduction of cable and satellite, there is a rapid accelerated growth in the uh, a number of minutes worth of media content available for every minute of attention. Now, um, I should add to this that the time series ends in 2005, and importantly, that in this graph, the internet, with everything that we can access through this, or whatever other connected device we, uh, we fancy using, counts as one minute. One. So in principle, this graph goes towards infinity. And that, I think, is the most basic transformation that media organizations have to come to terms with and the journalists have to come to terms with. But this is the competition that you face. And when you think about that, even though many organizations have suffered, even though many organizations have struggled, even though many people have felt the pain of this, I think we can say that actually news media in many countries are doing a great job. Think about any other industry in which you've had this kind of identification of competition. Would you still have virtually every major player survive? I leave you with that question. I think it's <laughs>